Trez, our creative director, she does a lot of our media and graphics stuff right now. She has for years. She Her previous title was our administrator. So the reason that things function so well around here is because of Shreya. And the reason they look cool is because of Shreya. So it would be very boring around here if it were all up to me. So you need to be happy that Shreya is a part of what we do. But uh, the subject that she's talking about today, I already got a chance to hear her talk to the first service. I, I think you're in for a treat. So we're looking forward to it. But let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for our friends and family that are gathered here today. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. Lord, as Shreya brings this message today, Father, I pray that you would help Shreya be calm. Lord, help her to articulate what you've put on her heart. Lord, we know, we know we're confident she'll do well. But Lord, we just pray that all those things that you've sown inside of her and her testimony and in all of the homework she's done and research over the years and educating herself, Lord, and her relationship with you, Lord, I pray that all those things would go out from her today and sow seeds in hearts and lives, Lord, prompting us to change and to draw closer to you and grow in our understanding in life, Lord. We pray that you lead us all today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, JR. Good morning, friends. I thought if I address you casually, I might uh, not be so nervous, but it's not working. You're terrifying. Um, it's been, a, honestly, a really long week preparing for this. I ended up with a migraine this week that kind of put me out for a couple days, and I just have been so nervous. And there were certain parts of this message that I didn't seem to be able to get through sitting alone in my office practicing without crying. So hopefully I got it out of my system and won't fall apart up here. <laughs> we'll see. Um, also, in preparation for this uh, message, I read or reread several books. I'm kind of a nerd like that and really like to read, but also because anxiety and I was trying to be prepared. It's not really fair that you guys heard from a professional for the last two weeks, and now I have to go, so trying to educate myself, right? Um, I read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, Darkness is My Only Companion by Catherine Green Trait. Um, that book is about, she's a priest who's suffered from bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder. I read Stitches by Anne Lamott and Troubled Minds by Amy Simpson. Um, Whenever I quote them directly, I will provide attribution, but if at any point I sound particularly brilliant, I might just be paraphrasing something from those brilliant books. Um, I would suggest any and all of them to you. They were really helpful to me and really have some beautiful stories in them. Um, especially if you have been impacted by chronic illness, whether physical or mental. So Daniel taught us last week, there's a lot of correlation between the physical and mental, right? That what happens to us in trauma can uh, cause physical symptoms, and obviously our physical state can affect our mental state as well. JR told a story in his message about when he cut his hand with a utility knife, right? And so then every time he uses a utility knife now, he opens it and cringes. And when things like that happen to us, they leave a mark, both on the inside and the outside. Um, mostly this morning, I will be sharing my own story, and hopefully that will connect with you. Um, my intention is this. I want to expand your definition of trauma, of suffering, of loss, and mental health. I think that it's really easy to dismiss ourselves, especially after we hear about um, things like the ACEs studies and trauma. And if we don't see ourselves in that list, then it's easy to think, oh, I, I don't qualify, you know? Um, and it's really easy to compare our stories with other people. But there are things that happen to us throughout our life that leave a mark that wound us. And the word trauma comes from a Greek word that literally just means wound. And 
um, trauma, like Daniel taught us last week, is an issue of perception, right? So what wounds me may not wound you. We may live in the same circumstances. Me and my siblings grew up in the same household, but we have different perceptions and different wounding from, from that experience. Uh, I wanted to, to acknowledge that um, talking about my, in talking about my own suffering, I don't mean to minimize the suffering or pain of anybody else's. So I will be talking a little bit about like ignored trauma. And I understand that for, for some of you here, you have lost and suffered so much. And ignored trauma is not a thing in your life, right? That your pain and your suffering is ever present with you. And um, even if you don't relate to my story fully, I hope that there's something in there that you can connect with. I wanted to share with you a quote from Viktor Frankl. He is an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist and also a Holocaust survivor. He said, to draw an analogy, a man's suffering is similar to the behavior of a gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. It's me knowing that this man survived not one but four concentration camps and can still say that suffering is relative is really impactful. But I do think that it's true, right, that whatever we're going through at the present time, if we are suffering, it fills our conscious mind. If you are leaning over the toilet puking because you have the flu, that is all you are thinking about at that moment. So I'll start my story from when I was um, 16 years old. I started experiencing these strange symptoms, uh, kind of like tingling and numbness all over my body. The best way that I have learned how to describe it was like the sting from a sunburn without the heat, or kind of like that feeling of when your leg is waking up after it's been asleep. Um, along with the nerve pain was muscle pain and tightness. And I worked for a chiropractor at the time, so they tried to figure some things out and couldn't, and sent me to the doctor who sent me to a pediatric neurologist because I was 17 years old. He sent me to the pedi pediatric ward. So uh, my symptoms were not very childlike. They didn't quite know what to do with me. So they sent me to a regular neurologist where they did a whole bunch of testing. They stuck electrodes all over me and, and stuck needles in my muscles and did blood work and MRIs looking for anything, really. They didn't know what to look for, but also looking for some of the big things, like. ALS or MS or other neurological diseases. The thing I remember most from that time um, was just feeling like really misunderstood and frustrated. It was hard articulating what was wrong and trying to explain things over and over and over to different practitioners and not really be getting any answers. Anne Lamott says, in the aftermath of loss, we do what we've always done, although we are changed, maybe more afraid. We do what we can as well as we can. We don't tend to think of pain or mental illness as loss, I think, but a loss definitely occurs. Whether it's your confidence, your innocence, your stability, your trust, your ability to use a utility knife without cringing, there are things that happen that take away a little bit of ourselves. And after all that testing, when I was a teenager, I was maybe more afraid although my adolescent teenage mind didn't really know how to process it. And honestly, I don't remember talking to anybody about it at the time. I don't remember any conversations where anyone was saying, this is really scary. Um, but it did leave a mark, even if I didn't understand it then. 
So life goes on. Uh, focus shifted a little bit. I was a busy teenager. I was dating my now husband, Reagan, um, working, attending college, eventually planning a wedding. And around the same time, my younger brother was struggling. When I was 18 and he was 15, he attempted suicide. And I went and stayed the night in the hospital with him um, so that my parents could go home and rest. And it was in the pediatric unit again because he was under 18. And it was a really strange contrast, this brightly colored, fun kid's room uh, in contrast with his emotional pain. And we were in like this wildlife-themed room. And I remember he woke up in the middle of the night and the paw prints that were decorating the wall, he thought they were spiders because he was still hallucinating from the meds he had OD'd on. And this would go to inform my definition of mental health, that being depressed was wanting to end your life and being in the hospital because of it. They didn't find anything, in case you're wondering, when I was 17 and how all that testing done. Um, years later, I got a copy of the notes from the neurologist, and it was so frustrating to read. Honestly, it was kind of infuriating. Like, the note summary said, Shreya is a healthy 17-year-old, and I just saw it, and I thought, I didn't feel healthy, and I still don't feel healthy, and I had all this pain that nobody could see. Fast forward um, nearly a decade. I had two kids, got married, got married, then had two kids, I should clarify. <laughs> Owned my own business, and life was good, and it was good. But all this time, I still had the same symptoms. And after I had my second child, uh, pretty severe joint pain was added to the nerve and muscle pain as well. Sometimes these symptoms would flare up and interfere with life and cause issues. Sometimes I would have to call into work because I was feeling so sensitive that I couldn't stand to wear anything except for super loose clothing, usually inside out because the seams bothered me. And so mostly I just ignored it and did what I could to accommodate. I had small children. Life was busy. Didn't really have time to think about it. Um, and I would accommodate where I could, change as soon as I got home. I still only wear ankle socks inside out because other ones bother my legs. But what else was I supposed to do? You know, just try and get through it. If I had to see a doctor for anything, I would kind of not mention the chronic pain history at all or just kind of brush by it as quickly as I could because nobody really understood. And I felt like I just got blank stares, which I don't blame them. They just didn't know what to do. Gradually, the symptoms got worse, and I realized I was accommodating more and more. I would avoid things I used to enjoy because my back hurt or because I was feeling sensitive and claustrophobic, and I got more and more physically sensitive. On good days, no one could tell, and I could forget. Um, but if anyone asked me at any given time if I was in pain, and I actually stopped to think about it, the answer was always yes. The poet John Donne says, and put all the miseries that man is subject to together. Sickness is more than all. In poverty, I lack other things. In banishment, I lack other men. But in sickness, I lack myself. On the bad days, the pain would make me very irritable and tired. I could easily relay I had a headache or my back hurt, so I'm tired. And so that's how most people in my life at that time would hear about the pain and still do. But I felt like I was losing myself a little bit, like my world was shrinking. I couldn't do as many things and just kind of losing myself in the process. I would be kind of crabby or in a funk and try and shake it off. And 
just kept trying to ignore and keep going. You guys have seen that meme, right? This is fine. This is fine. Everything's fine. The decline was gradual. It was hard to see how all the bad days were adding up to um, just a really overall poor state of being. My mental health symptoms came to the surface more after I had my third child rolling. Um, my pregnancy was difficult. It started with a miscarriage scare early on and then ended with an emergency C-section. Um, and I was on orders my whole pregnancy to take it easy, which is super vague. Like, what does that even mean? But I tried to, you know, not do too much. Um, but things would prove to be too much, like taking, I had a three-year-old and a two-year-old, so taking my other two kids to the park or going grocery shopping, and then I'd be sore and contracting, which is what we were trying to avoid. And my husband would be so worried. He'd be like, why did you do that? You're overdoing it. And I'm like, I didn't know I was overdoing it. You know, like, I couldn't just sit there and do nothing. But it was just a constant back and forth. And the anxiety exhausted me. And it made me, it left me very defensive and angry. When I think about that time, um, I was so mad at my kids. <laughs> I mean, all us moms are, but I just... It, the kids and the kids I babysat, when I think about how I would just fly at the handle, it just, I cringe, you know? Kids have a way of pushing you to your limits, and um, the anxiety of that season, plus the kids, brought out an intensity that I didn't even know I was capable of. And each child that was added to the mix, and the less I took care of myself, the more susceptible I became to irrational behavior, like expecting way, way too much from a three-year-old and two-year-old, or... Um, Gosh, at nap time, if somebody woke somebody else up, God help us all. The world, the world was going to end, you know. I, uh, I blamed most of it on pregnancy hormones and being in pain because, yeah, you can blame everything on being pregnant pretty much. Um, so it was May when I had my son, Dolan, and I was feeling energized for the first few months. Um, I had really been banking on with it being my third delivery, it would just be a breeze, recovery, no big deal. I had two other kids and a business to run. And the C-section really kind of threw a wrench in that, made for a harder recovery, but just the fact that I wasn't pregnant was good enough, and um, I felt pretty good. When I went to my um, postpartum follow-up, the OBGYN told me that women who had C-sections tend to get more depressed postpartum. And he wrote me a script for an antidepressant. Like, here you go, just in case you need it. Which I really, really appreciated that he was talking about it. Like, that's good. But that also kind of freaked me out. I wasn't about to just like start taking an antidepressant um, without medical supervision. And I also, at that point, didn't really think I was depressed. You know, I wasn't pregnant. It was summer. Things were good. And the bad days were just because I was tired and overwhelmed. I had three children. Um, that fall, my deductible was met from that C-section, so I thought, well, um, maybe it's time I got some things done. I kind of felt like I needed to do something good for myself after a hard year of pregnancy and recovery, and I decided um, that I was going to confront the chronic pain and try and figure it out. So I started with an allergist because um, I had noticed that it seemed like some foods kind of triggered my symptoms. So I went to the allergist, and barely even described why I was there before he said, you don't have allergies, go to a neurologist. So it's like, okay, well, there's a new neurologist in town. That's the one I saw before, so I'll give that a try. 
I went to the neurologist and they um, did blood work and a routine exam. And the neurologist told me, she said, you're just hypersensitive. Literally, those were her words. Thank you for that, as if I didn't know. <laughs> and um, I went from feeling pretty energized and hopeful back to frustrated and misunderstood and really pretty discouraged that things would get any better. C.S. Lewis says that mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken, or to say I'm depressed, or even to say I'm not okay. So a few months later, I was about nine months postpartum and realized that I was still in a funk. You know? um, I had started to come to terms with the fact that I wasn't okay. I had seen a video on Facebook that, which sounds so dumb when you say those words out loud, but um, it was called, I had a black dog and his name is Depression. It was based off a children's book, actually. Um, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's great. And it was really helpful to me because it talked about the symptoms of depression and what they actually are. And I really saw myself a lot in those symptoms in that video. I had gotten it in my head that depression was something more extreme, that it was being suicidal or staying in bed for days or something like that. And it often is. That's sometimes when we finally see what's going on with someone. But for me, depression looks like being overwhelmed by almost everything, being paralyzed by decisions and lacking motivation to do much of anything, not enjoying things I used to enjoy, being not a morning person because it's hard to get up in the morning, and you know, flying into uncharacteristic rage with my kids. It was more than just being a tired mom and having a hard time getting it together. So I decided to see a naturopathic doctor. I had been looking into options for um, kind of like natural ways to help my mood, like St. John's wort and whatever, but I was still nervous to take something on my own. So I went to this doctor, and um, in the course of the, the appointments, and I'm explaining my medical history, and the chronic pain stuff came up, and she just stopped me and for me, this was life-changing. She said, wait, what? And so I stopped, and I told her all about all this pain I'd been experiencing for the last 10 years. And she said, you are way too young to be feeling this way. Let's try some things to see if we can get you feeling better. Finally, finally, I was 27 years old. And after the neurologist had made me feel crazy, after being labeled a perfectly healthy 17-year-old when I was in so much pain, someone heard me and validated my pain in a meaningful way. We tried some things over the next year, got my hormones balanced out, found out I needed some vitamin D, that me and gluten aren't friends, things like that. Um, some things got better. My mental health symptoms improved some, but the chronic pain remained, and it came and went just like usual. In her book, Darkness is My Only Companion, Catherine Green McCray says this. And so I have learned what I thought I already knew. Chronic disease ebbs and flows. Loss is an ingredient in every human life. We allow it to do so. Loss can impart wisdom. We learn that contrary to what we might have hoped, human life is delicate, fragile, and transitory. Life-threatening illnesses force us to look into the pit we all face at one point or another, our own death. 
our senses of power, control, freedom, independence, these are misplaced illusions. There is no mastering loss. I learned from the naturopathic doctor that I was indeed fragile and that I hadn't taken very good care of myself. So that was helpful. Um, after that, I started seeing a physical therapist because I thought maybe a more structural approach might help. Um, maybe there was just something wrong with my muscles or something. So I started seeing this PT that was Catholic. Um, we would talk about suffering and prayer and faith and all this stuff during my appointments. And I felt like for the first time, maybe I was um, able to process a little bit uh, some of the loss that I had had throughout my life surrounding chronic pain. And he would pray for me and encourage me. It was like one part physical therapy, one part psychotherapy, and one part spiritual guidance. I don't know. Um, around the same time, we were looking for a new house because we, you know, a family of five had outgrown our little starter home. And we went and looked at this cool house in town that oddly had like an elevator in the middle of it, um, which the kids thought was amazing. And I didn't think it was quite so cool. So um, we were looking around for a little bit. And walking through this house, I started to just get this like, creeped out feeling, like, ooh, you know, like, heebie-jeebie, you guys know what I mean. And um, I was talking with the realtor about the elevator, and I was like, oh, we could take it out of the coat closet, like, that's what seems like should be there, and the realtor was like, oh, you can just leave it in case you ever need an elevator. And I was like, my stomach turned and just sank, and I felt sick, and I still feel it every time I drive by that house. What if I needed an elevator? Something he had said offhand to me was a very big deal. And all the, the fear of all the pain and testing and everything from 11 years ago suddenly came flooding back to me. Things that I didn't even know was afraid of. It had festered and grown all that time. Negative tests should have been good news when I was 17, right? But the unknown doesn't feel like good news. And I realized that all that time I was really scared that there was something something and they just hadn't found it yet so shortly after that I went to one of my appointments the physical therapist and I I finally just blurted it out I said it out loud so what if I do have MS what if it gets diagnosed sometime in my 30s people aren't diagnosed till they're in their 30s usually and he looked at me and he said so what if you do and honestly I don't think he could have given me a better answer because so what if I did? I had to come to terms with it. Ignoring everything for a decade hadn't done me any good. Obviously, I was still scared. And I had to think about what would it mean for me and for my faith if I had a serious disease like that. I really like how um, Catherine talks about it in her book. Uh, she references Ecclesiastes 9, which says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their owl will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. When I asked God why this happened, Ecclesiastes answered, why not? Time and chance happen to all. So why not this time, this chance, and me? If we get the idea that we are not meant to suffer, 
we will go through life greatly disappointed. I don't need to tell you that the Bible is full of suffering. You look at the Old Testament, it's just like traumatic story after traumatic story that we kind of get used to because we've heard them since we were kids. And like, I don't know why we tell those stories to children, some of them, because they are horrific. But when you actually stop and think about what's happening and how much trauma and hurt there was, or if you think about the early church and when people were first starting to follow Christ, there was no anesthesia. They had all the same issues and medical problems we do without the same medical interventions. Historians estimate that in first century Rome, um, the infant mortality rate was somewhere around 30%. If you just think about that, that these people, these new Christians, that nearly one in a three babies didn't have a chance of making it until their first birthday. C.S. Lewis says, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, and you find that you have excluded life itself. And I don't mean to be <laughs> discouraging. Ecclesiastes can tend to sound that way. But I wanted to get up here and wrap everything up nicely for you guys and tie a pretty bow on it and give you a three-step plan of how to overcome suffering. Yay! But that's, um, that's not really how this story goes. And that's not really how most stories go. I am still in pain. I still struggle with anxiety and depression. And I've tried many things and haven't gotten many answers. What I have gotten is answers about what I don't have. And what I do have, well, I don't know. But here are some things that I do know. We all suffer. And ignoring it or pretending that that isn't our reality is not helpful. And no matter what, suffering still hurts. Pain hurts. Like, that's what the word means. There's so much in our life that it hurts. And theologians and philosophers still debate what the origin of suffering is. Did God orchestrate the suffering? Did, is it just a result of sin nature and brokenness in the world, and God just uses that suffering? And if they can't figure it out, I'm not really sure that I can. But um, I wanted to share with you guys another quote from Viktor Frankl. It says, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. So if we are, we know that we all suffer, and we know that God can redeem suffering. The Bible tells us that. And we can choose to let suffering crush us. We have a choice in our response to it. We can choose to let it crush us, or we can choose to have hope for redemption. In Romans 5, it says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. First Peter, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I think that rejoicing in suffering is maybe kind of a stretch. Not going <laughs> to go too long on that one, but... I think we can't deny that suffering does produce good things in us, that it does produce perseverance and character, and that we are able to learn from it. I read a study, um, this man had done research about how when we, and I 
I couldn't find it again to cite it, but how over the age of 25, it is very difficult to change without trauma. That unless something happens to us, some external force, um, that causes a lot of change. But if we're just trying to change on our own, it's not very easy. So I know that we all suffer, and I know that God can redeem that suffering. And I know that our faith helps us find hope and meaning in suffering. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so if we suffer, suffer and God redeems that, and we have hope, that's great. But what I want to ask you this morning is, does your hope require that you ignore the present circumstances? Does your theology hold up to suffering? Does your faith tell you that suffering is all your fault or that you don't have enough faith? And is that the truth? I don't believe it is. But I want you to go find that out for yourself. I'm not going to stand up here and teach you all the theology of suffering. There are so many good resources, and I want you to actually stop and think about that and think about if the worst of the worst happens, can I still believe in God and can I still show up to church and, and what that means for you? What are you believing about God? in those circumstances? And is your gospel good news for those who are hurting, or does it condemn them and leave them feeling alone? You guys, I have been prayed for for healing more times than I can count. So many times. And somebody gets up on a stage and calls for a prayer for healing and says, if you want to be healed, you just have to have more faith. So we all stir our faith and we pray, and then the people who aren't healed are left to believe what? that if you weren't healed, you didn't have enough faith. And nobody is trying to make them think that, but that's the reality, right? You can't tell me that I don't have enough faith. It takes a lot of faith to show up week after week after I've been prayed for it and nothing happens. I've had to learn how to maintain faith in my reality, and that's why I want to challenge you to think about suffering and think about your faith and whether or not what you believe about God can hold up in this reality that we all suffer. I had to change my prayer from God, heal me, heal me, heal me, and banking everything on that to God, I know you can heal me. I know that he can. But will he? Will he? I don't know. And I have to be okay with that even when I don't know the answer. The other thing I know is that we need each other. I have been able to be open and honest about my faith with people in my life and about anxiety and depression. And just talking about things helps. You know, when we're holding something in our hearts and in our minds, it becomes bigger and bigger. Like Viktor Frankl said about suffering, it, it takes up so much space. But when we talk about things, it helps make it smaller and it helps release some of that power. Anne Lamott says, better to feel it and talk about it and walk through it than spend a lifetime being silently poisoned. And sometimes talking to people is hard. 
I'm not going to pretend that it isn't. Sometimes we talk to people about things that are really important to us and that are really hurtful, and we get these nice platitudes and nice things that are supposed to make us feel better, and it doesn't really make us feel better. Um, I want to talk to you guys about empathy. Brene Brown says that empathetic statements rarely, if ever, begin with at least. And there's the idea of self-empathy, that we need to have empathy on ourselves. And I think that we go around at leasting ourselves to death. And we compare ourselves to other people's stories in a sort of backwards way. Like, at least I'm not suicidal. There are starving kids in China. Or at least it's not cancer. But we aren't going to get anywhere dismissing our own pain or mental health as less than somebody else's. Of course, um, positive thinking and having a positive outlook can be impactful. Don't misunderstand me that we don't need to be grateful and think about good things. But I guess what I would like to challenge you with is that it's not an either or, right? That it's a, a yes and that we can look at our own pain and suffering in the face and say, this sucks. Like, this sucks. This sucks. But we can still be grateful for what we have. And we can still know that God is good. It's not pretending that nothing happened. But it's acknowledging the pain and saying, yes, this is hard, or this will be hard for me, but I can do it anyway, and God is still good. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Acknowledging our pain doesn't mean we have to go around crying to all our friends all the time. It's this huge thing, but it shouldn't be no deal, right? There's a proverb that says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. And we have to actually be willing to look into those deep waters and see what's there, and draw it out and deal with it. So we have to have empathy for ourselves, but we also have to have empathy for others. And we do this to each other all the time, at leasting everybody or, or saying, but, but. I did this to a friend of mine last year who was having an incredibly hard time with some things, and I just kept trying to help her see the bright side, like, well, what about this, and what about this? And I thought I was being helpful, but <laughs> in the end she just said, I'm really hurting. And you, I feel like you just keep saying, but. That wasn't what she needed. She didn't mean me to flip things around and make it positive. She needed someone just to sit with her in the pain. The Bible teaches us a lot about this, right? taking care of each other and being there for one another. Here are just a few examples. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Be kind and compassionate with one another carry each other's burdens. It's not just trying to eradicate people's suffering, but joining in it with them, just sitting in it with them, just listening. Jesus is an ultimate example of this, taking on our human condition and coming here and just being in humanity with us and suffering it all, right? So we need each other, and we have to ask for help, and we have to talk about it. I started going to therapy about two years ago. Um, it turns out when you spend most of your adult life trying to detach from the bad stuff in your life, then you start missing out on good things too. Who knew? I felt like I was starting to miss out on good things, like good moments with my children and things like that. I was just kind of checked out. And started to realize how much depression and anxiety I had over time. And what ultimately made me make the call to go to therapy. It wasn't something huge, 
I realized that when I was anxious and stressed, that my pain levels kicked up. And I thought, okay, I need to learn some coping mechanisms to manage this a little bit better. And so I went to therapy, and in hindsight, I could see all kinds of things that were wrong, right? How depressed I had been for years and how anxious I had been. Um, I learned that not everyone reads every Amazon review that ever existed. Uh, that some people just walk into Target and buy whatever car seat's on sale, like total barbarians. But um, I, would, I would obsess over things in my mind and replay conversations or be awake for hours in the middle of the night. And I realized over time that anxiety was driving a lot of those things. So I still go to therapy. Um, and I'm learning how to talk about how I feel. I'm learning how to be more self-aware and self-evaluate. And I'm learning how to care for myself and what things actually restore me. Um, Daniel talked a little bit about this last week, that um, the idea of self-care, that, that what is caring for me may not be the same for you. And um, I realized I was doing a lot of the wrong things. Like, as a mom, it was, you know, you always need a break from the kids. So I was like, okay, girls weekend, we're going to go somewhere. And I would come home exhausted. Like, it turns out I'm pretty introverted and... A weekend away with a bunch of girls isn't the most refreshing thing ever. Yes, it was good and important, but I had to like change my expectations of what I thought those things would do for me. And I had to figure out what things actually would restore me and give me life so that I could be a better parent and better everything. <laughs> so we need to care for ourselves, and we need to care for each other. And care for each other by listening without story topping, I think is an important thing. Um, it's really easy when we're trying to be empathetic to start story topping. Somebody says, I'm sad, and then we say, I'm sad too. And we're just trying to relate, but what people need to hear instead maybe is something like, when they say, I'm sad, you can say, I'm so sorry. Why don't you tell me more about that? And as friends, we can ask specific and hard questions. When someone is depressed, especially, it can be really hard to think clearly and if you're feeling overwhelmed. So ask if you're thinking it. Are you feeling depressed? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? Can I come over and make dinner tonight? Not just, hey, let me know if you need some help. Be specific. And as friends, it's important to recognize when it's time to say, you need help and people in your life and that they need something besides just their friends. Um, I've had a lot of incredible people in my life who had shared with me about their experiences with therapy or with medication and different things, and it's been so helpful. But I also recognized that at some point I needed something more, and I'm so glad that I made the decision to do something about it. So in conclusion, I would just say... Um, Take time to acknowledge your own pain and other people's pain. And try not to compare your stories. Are you at leasting yourself and others? And talk about the hard things. Be specific. Be kind and gentle. Ask uh, hard questions. And lastly, I would encourage you, whatever you're experiencing, to do something or try something. And healing may not look like what you thought it would. The trajectory isn't just like some straight path. Um, 
as I've learned how to manage my anxiety, my house has actually gotten dirtier because I used to like angry and like anxious clean everything. And on the outside, that may not look like progress, but let me tell you guys, it is progress. And I have to learn how to do things not just because I'm anxious, but because I care about myself and I want to have a clean house. And it, sometimes it is relearning those habits. So be patient with yourself if you are hurting and healing, and be patient with others when they are hurting and healing. Most of all, I would just say, just keep trying anything. Thank you.